It's that time of year. It's that time of year where NFL writers swoop in to school us simpletons on how college football actually works. We are a blessed people, ladies and gentlemen. We are jam-packed. We are high atop a bustling downtown Nashville, Tennessee, because this is Late Kick Live. And it is Sunday night, June 4th, the year of our Lord, 2023. One of the worst articles I've ever seen. I don't, I don't know how else to put it, and I will go through it for you tonight. It's going to talk about some things that you and I have spoken about before, and it's going to come from arguably the most uninformed angle imaginable. So we'll lead the show with that. Uh, we've got a big college football documentary about to drop. I don't know, Jesse and Colin, if we have ever spent time on this show talking about a college football documentary. But when you tell me that one of the streaming giants like Netflix is on board for a documentary of the University of Florida circa 06 to 09, I salivate. Sign me up for that. On a scale of one to pony excess, which to this point is like the gold standard for college football documentaries, we'll see where that one stacks up. We have got the launch of one of producer Jesse's brain children tonight. I don't know how many of those things are running around here, but one of them is the Pate State Spotlight series. We're going to call it Pate State 101 just because it's more palatable. We are shining a bright white hot spotlight on Norman, Oklahoma tonight. And it's not about softball. Although, as I said last night, I think Patty Gasso and company could probably hang with the A's right now. No, we're going to tell you everything you need to know about Oklahoma football. It's going to be kind of like a preview magazine in like three minutes with no pages. Look at us going green around here. Also, the scheduling conversation in this sport has reached a level where I don't think the fruit can drag the ground. It could not hang any lower than it is right now. We have got a jam-packed show it's June, but who in the world knows when we're going to go off the air tonight? There is, of course, no offseason. They're watching this in Westlake, Ohio. Uh, Satellite Beach, Florida is tuned in. Southington, Connecticut. Boiling Springs, South Carolina. Thank you guys so much. You tuned in all over the country, all over the world. I appreciate it. More than you could know. We're going to be live from Miami, the University of Miami, Thursday night. What a big week for South Florida. NHL Stanley Cup final. No S on the end. In town, just up the road in Fort Lauderdale. We got the Heat and the NBA Finals. We've got Late Kick Live in town. So the three pillars that qualify you for being the center of the sporting universe, they're all in place. You've got like the three, the three posts on the stool. Take a seat. Enjoy it this week, South Florida. We'll be down there, and I'm going to have a jam-packed show for you Thursday night that will include Miami head coach Mario Cristobal. And for those of you who think I'm going down there with a bucket full of softballs to toss him, maybe off camera, on camera, hard-hitting questions as only we can deliver. Meet the college football press. Chuck Todd's out at Meet the Press. Meet the college football press starring yours truly. We're headed down to South Florida Thursday. We're going to have a good time there. Okay, uh, that's all fun and games, but I've got something very, very serious in my hand right now. Immunity. I, I can't believe this. Okay, Colin, here's your end point. For those wondering what that means, Director Colin clips this for individual use on YouTube and a lot of the shenanigans that go on in between segments you never see on those individual videos because I say things like, Colin, here's your endpoint." I'm from Harris County, Georgia. You may not know this, but we have wild peacocks in Harris County. Not many of them. So it's still really, really rare to see one, but it's not like a Sasquatch. If your buddy texts you and says, hey, I saw a wild peacock today up on Veterans Parkway. Hey, saw a wild peacock out near Goat Rock Dam. You say, oh, really? I want to come see it. But you don't call him a liar. And so when you guys came to me this week and you said, casual alert, we, we got a casual sighting in the wild. Did it stop and get my attention? Yes. But did I believe you? Also, yes. Because I know. I know these people are out there. And one of them, at least when it comes to college football, happens to be Mike Florio of ProFootballTalk.com. I rarely spend time going down the road I'm about to go down on this show, but this is pure idiocy that was written by Mike Florio about a sport he is not paid to cover this week, and it shows. Believe me, kids, it shows. So essentially what we have here is like the equivalent of a college football flat earther, and there is all kinds of mountains of evidence to the contrary over here, but it doesn't matter because there's a drum that he wants to beat, and so he stuck to it. Facts be damned, he's stuck to it. So Jesse, I want you to do me a favor, because here's what all this is about. Nick Saban and all the head coaches in the SEC were down at, not media days yet, but the spring meetings in Destin this past week. And they all spoke about the same stuff, but because Nick Saban is Nick Saban, his voice gets amplified. That's the way it is, and I don't really have a problem with that, per se. 
The problem is when your voice gets amplified, everyone takes a bite out of it, and some people have no clue what they're talking about. So here is a quote from Nick Saban this week saying things that we've heard him say before. It just, like I said, it got a little more amplified this week. From Nick Saban, Alabama head coach, quote, he's speaking on NIL, by the way, quote, if it's going to be the same for everyone, I think that's better than what we have now, because what we have now is we have some states and some schools in some states that are investing a lot more money in terms of managing their roster than others. He was, of course, talking about the inequality in state laws, state to state. You've got some teams that they compete against, even at Alabama, that are legally allowed to do things that they're not legally allowed to do, and that would drive any coach up a wall. So then everyone spoke their piece on it. I actually spoke about this Thursday, and I then prayed to the good Lord that night that we were done talking about it. And then Mike Florio comes along, just drives through our college football neighborhood and throws his trash out. I'm holding it in my hand, consequently. And so let me tell you how this dude took what Nick Saban said. I have three parts that I want to read you, and it gets worse and worse. Casual quote number one from Mike Florio, courtesy of Pro Football Talk. Quote, when Alabama coach Nick Saban first complained about the NCAA's still new NIL reality, some thought he was simply firing a warning shot at college football before he exploited the latest device for getting the best possible players and kicking everyone's A word. Jesse's in the other room. I don't use that kind of language around him. Mike Florio continues. He absolutely wasn't. He was scared about what NIL would do to his program, his goals, and his legacy. And, according to Mike Florio, he's still scared. Which leads me, investigative journalist JP, to follow up with the important pivotal question, how scared is Nick Saban? Well, we, um, we have some data. You know, if I want to know on a scale of one to infinity, how scared is Nick Saban? Because we're several years into the whole NIL thing now. We just had a recruiting cycle right smack dab in the middle of the NIL era. Nick Saban was so scared he went and signed the best class he's ever signed. Now, that's my opinion, but it's also right up there in terms of raw data and statistics with the highest rated class in the history of recruiting rankings. It was neck and neck with that A&M class of a season before. Uh, Alabama signed, of course, the number one class in the country. Many people who cover that program and some who just observe it like me think it's the best class he signed, period. And the thing about it is this was right in front of Mike Florio's face. What wasn't in front of his face, because as you can't tell clearly enough, there wasn't an ounce of digging done before this piece was written, is Alabama didn't win a ton of bidding wars to put that class together anyway. Now, that's something you do have to have a little bit more insider knowledge to know. and I. I spoke as deeply as I could about this during the last recruiting cycle, not just about Alabama, but since we're talking about Saban here, I talked about it with Georgia. I talked about it with Ohio State. And consequently, Colin just showed you the recruiting rankings. All those teams are way up there. These are not teams winning bidding wars because contrary to popular casual belief out there, the highest dollar figure is not what's attracting the best talent in the country. Sometimes it does. You're going to be able to find plenty of anecdotal examples to the contrary. But I am telling you, and you can believe me or not, but I've talked to actual kids involved in this, and I would highly advise you do the same if you can. Ask them what matters. Ask, off the record, you get the camera out of their face. Get the mic out of their face. They'll tell you. I'm talking about the ones with four and five stars next to their name. They'll tell you NIL does matter. Now, I do want at least a competitive financial offer. Be in the ballpark. But they also understand, because today's players never been more educated in the history of college football recruiting than they are, because there are so many different mechanisms out there with which they can educate themselves. There are camps. There are clinics. There are all kinds of symposiums. They'll also tell you, I got to make a 40-year decision, not a four-year decision, not a four-month decision. They, a lot of them know this. There's this big fear that all high school kids are stupid and they're ignorant and they, they're surrounded by ignorant people and they're being led down the wrong path. And I'm not telling you that doesn't happen. And I'm not telling you there aren't bad actors out there. But by and large, the ones who are, have five stars next to their name, we didn't find out about them their senior year. They've been highly rated since 10th grade. In other words, People in their sphere, including themselves, they've known where they're, they're going. They're, they've known where they're trending. They've known they're going to have offers from coast to coast since the time they were in 10th grade. And they've been treated that way. 
And therefore, they've been given advice from every angle. And in many cases, thankfully, they've had some very, very wise counsel come in the room with them. And then you've also got colleges that do it the right way who have educated them on the idea that it doesn't really matter if someone can drop 90 grand per year in front of you, whereas the next best offer is 55. That is a lot of money to a high school kid. You have generational wealth ability about yourself and pretty much everyone else around you doesn't. And so what I'm trying to tell you in a long-winded way is Alabama just signed the number one class in the country. They didn't need the deepest pockets to do it. Georgia's right behind them. Georgia, I think, will probably sign the number one class in the country this year. They don't need the deepest pockets to do it. So it's terribly flawed logic, but he had just gotten started there. So Saban's so scared, he, he went and signed the number one class in the country. We continue, or Mike Florio does. I just, I just drag along here. Quote, Saban's desperation extends to suggesting the kind of dramatic change the NCAA has resisted for decades. Quote from Saban, I have no problem with players becoming employees. I mean, unionize it. Make it like the NFL. And then Mike Florio editorializes, unfortunately. Easy, big fella. The powers that be don't want the players to be employees. They don't want them to have to pay them. They definitely don't want a union. Now, to his credit, they're accurate. At least those words are accurate. He's right about that. thing about it, though, is um, he just wasted a lot of breath he'll never get back trying to explain to you and I, Nick Saban's the one that's scared. And then Nick Saban walks up and says, hey, I've got a radical proposal. Let's unionize this. Let's just make players employees. And then Florio comes back and says, uh, well, you can't do that, Coach Saban. Why can't I do that? The NCAA is scared. I know most of you already spot the flaw in that logic, but if you don't, you know, if you were just kind of listening on autopilot, catch this. If you're the one suggesting the radical approach, and then someone else's rules or someone else's viewpoint based in fear is what's keeping you from that, you're probably not the one scared. That's at least been my observation. It's like Mimo always used to say, just because something doesn't make sense to you doesn't mean it doesn't make sense, JP. And with Mike Florio, I know a lot of this stuff doesn't make sense because he doesn't live here. He doesn't live in college football. But just because it doesn't make sense to Mike Florio doesn't mean it doesn't make sense. There's a lot that makes sense here if you'll just listen. And so, you know, Saban suggests last week in Destin, hey, compared to what we have now, which is just a mess, why don't we just head down the road we all know we're going down anyway? Why don't we arrive at the destination we all think we're going to arrive at anyway? Like everyone in college football talks this way off the record. Everyone thinks we're headed towards employment. Everybody does. He's saying, why are we... Why are we Meemaw quoting in, him hawing around. Why don't we just get there? Because in the meantime, hey, I mean, I have 15 years left on my career. I, I don't want the latter part of my tenure at Alabama to be in this quicksand of nothingness because we all know where we're headed anyway. So he said, unionize it, employ the players. And the very folks who are claiming he's the one who's scared, tell him you can't do that because other people are scared of doing that. Huh. By the way, now, I'm not a head coach, and you know, maybe if you paid me $10 million a year, I would also take it upon myself to assume part of that salary is paying me to ignore foolish stuff like this. But can you imagine for a second, you've got 99 problems already to deal with, and then the NCAA just dumps a bucket of crap in your lap in the form of new transfer portal and NIL guidelines, and then they run away with the mop. So no one's left there to clean it up. You're there left to clean it up. And you yell, you just dumped this stuff all over me. And then there's this, this kid over in the corner who's, who's never laced it up. He's never buckled a chin strap. He's never walked in an office with his name played on it a day in his life. And he's over there saying, what, what are you scared? You scared of that mess? What, what are you scared of? Like no one in the real world would operate like this. When I was a young JP, when I was a youth in West Central Georgia, one of the biggest stories that I remember early in my observation of sports was when Tanya Harding had the crowbar dude go after Nancy Kerrigan. Okay, so Nancy Kerrigan takes the shin to the crowbars, and there's the famous clip of her screaming in pain, you know, as anyone does when they take a crowbar to the shins, whomst amongst us hasn't been there. Mike Florio is the kind of dude who walks in and says, well, you scared to figure skate tonight, Nancy? You scared? No. She is reacting appropriately and proportionately to what just got done to her. Nick Saban and other head coaches are reacting, in some cases publicly, in pretty much every other case behind the scenes, proportionately to what the NCAA just did to them. The NCAA a couple of years ago took the crowbar, 
right to the shins of head coaches. And because they make a lot of money, people like Mike Florio get to sit back and say, we'll deal with it. it. Like we said the other night, it does not matter if you're paid $5 or $5 billion. You're capable of 100% of what you're capable of. And logical points are logical points. No matter how much money you make, if you're making sense, you're making sense. You might think it's over. No, friends, it got even worse than that. Quote number three. I cannot believe this is multiple pages deep. This sucks so bad. Um, here, here's, I'm not going to dignify this even with a response, but I do want you to know this was written by a, an esteemed, credentialed member of the NFL media. Quote, the situation eventually could force Saban to become a Tuscaloosa Judas, an old-fashioned TJ. If he can't whine the desired change into existence, really, would anyone be surprised if Saban eventually starts sniffing around one of those schools in one of those states where there's enough money to buy up all the best players and also to pay him even more than he's currently making? Um, in case you weren't following, the suggestion there is, hey, maybe Nick Saban will leave Alabama in his 70s. 16 years in. Yeah, maybe he'll leave Alabama. So, of course, that's not going to happen. I won't waste your time even dignifying that. But let me ask you this, Mike Florio or anyone else. How much money do people really think it takes to put together a college football roster? Like operating in the world the Alabamas and Ohio States and USC's operate in, how much money do you really think it takes? This is not a bottomless pit. That's not the way this works. It's not like one of those, those air cash grab machines where it just looks like it's money forever. That's not the way this is working. Quite the opposite, actually. There's a lot more structuring in the NIL world going on. It's like when you talk about oceans and you talk about whether the Atlantic is the deepest or the Pacific is the deepest or the Indian Ocean is the deepest. My feet can't touch the bottom in any of them. They're all deep in college football. It really is not going to matter. I promise you guys, it's not going to matter that the University of Alabama is closest to the Birmingham media market, whereas USC is closest to the Los Angeles media market. If this were the NFL and you needed tens of millions of dollars in cap space, if the salary structure was in that orbit, you would. We are not talking about those kinds of dollar figures. And secondly, the value of the IP that you're rubbing your name against is where the real value is in college football. The University of Alabama's value is not drawn from the media market they're in. It's not drawn from the GDP of the state they're located in. This is where you need to understand what you're talking about or you need to sit down and let other folks who are more educated on it talk. Uh, Mike Florio fits into the former, not the latter camp. The reason why Alabama is able to sign the kids they're able to sign is because number one, of the guy who's driving the ship, and number two, because of what that script A means. Over there in Athens, what that block G means. And up the road in Columbus, Ohio, like those brands and the value held therein, that is what holds the value for me as a recruit. And so nine times out of 10 in this past recruiting cycle, what I kept getting told, and this is the way it'll continue to happen, is the Bamas, Georgias, Ohio States of the world, they didn't need to match the biggest offers out there. I cannot tell you how littered that Alabama commitment list is with kids whose highest offers were not from the University of Alabama. Caden Proctor went on record as talking about this. That's a five-star tackle from Iowa who had a bigger offer from Iowa and went to Alabama. Why, Mike, anyone, why did he do that? Because you can't claim to me that it's under the table anymore because it's legal to pay kids. So that old, that old go-to is out the window. Obama bought him. No, actually... They underbid for him, and the kid can just talk about it legally. Caden Proctor went there because he was the best tackle in this class, and they developed his position in Alabama about as well as anyone. And if there was a number two, it would be Iowa. And some could make the argument, pound for pound, Iowa's done a better job. I'm not here to litigate that. I'm here to tell you, do you have any concept of how these decisions are actually being made? Uh, the answer for people like Mike Florio is no. Uh, and the, the answer for most of you is no. The difference is most of you know that. Like most people understand the NIL world and how this is working, how these kids are actually making decisions. I don't know. It's anyone's guess. Just find me on signing day. Let's see who signs who. That would have been a good approach for the Mike Florios of the world. Instead, we, we, 
This tree did not deserve to die this way. It could have gone so much better for this poor tree than, than its dying breath to have Mike Florio's words on college football printed on it. Rip tree. It's a shame. All right, let's move on. We have more college football matters to talk about. I, I needed to get it off my chest because too many of you came at me and you said, could you please give me your thoughts on this? And I said, Colin and Jesse, let's just save it for the show. It's just foolishness. And so many people clicked on it that it will be encouraged behavior. And I guess we'll probably respond accordingly. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, anyway, you know what it is. Bold prediction season continues. And by the way, before we end point it, Colin, we got a loaded show. Like, we're going all over the place in this show tonight. I know it is uh, June 4th. We're like in mid-season form right now. Uh, the traffic suggests that as well, so I appreciate you guys. Just make sure you subscribe to the channel and the podcast while you're here. Oh, and in a related note, before I talk to you about these bold predictions that are all eight and a half or higher tonight, you know, we brought our buddy Cole Kublik on the show a couple of weeks ago as part of the Pate State Speaker Series. I just dropped it on Memorial Day Eve, thought you'd enjoy it. Oh boy, did you. Our man now saw his podcast vault into the top 15 worldwide in the football rankings. And that includes NFL shows as well. So from Mr. Cube through me to you, he wanted me to thank you because a lot of our audience went and did exactly what I humbly asked that you do. And subscribe to his channel, The Cube Show, brought to you by Wickles Pickles. They got that Wickles money over there. Uh, it's a really good show. I would not suggest you do it if it wasn't. You don't hear me do this very often. I think you guys who watch regularly know that. Okay, bold prediction time. What do you believe in so much this fall that you would bet your own hard-earned money or perhaps your parents' hard-earned money on? Well, I'll tell you where we went immediately to start Chapter 6 of Bold Predictions. College Station, Texas. Adam said, point blank. Texas A&M wins under six games, and Jimbo gets fired at the end of the season. Adam actually hails from Radford, Virginia. Well, these are as correlated as it gets. Normally, I, I don't care for it when you guys go with like double and triple predictions in one tweet uh, because it just messes up my, my ranking system. But A&M winning fewer than six games and Jimbo being fired, are, they're correlated. Vegas would never let you parlay this. And I'd never let you parlay anything because we don't believe in parlays. I'm going to make this an eight and a half. Not crazy. Jimbo wins under six games and, and he gets fired. Not crazy. Not expected, but not crazy. Eight and a half. Uh, their over-under win total is also eight and a half, as it turns out. They were five and seven last year. I think we all remember that. I looked at their schedule earlier today. I mean, so let's just get down to brass tacks here for a second. If they are to win fewer then six games. We got to look here at the schedule. It's got to go pretty bad pretty quickly for them. So right off the bat, I'm telling you they got three wins against New Mexico, ULM, Abilene Christian. I'm going to go ahead and call those three wins. I need three more wins minimum out of the rest of these games. They're going to be favored by six. It looks right now like they're favored by six at Miami. They're a three-point favorite against Arkansas. Uh, they are eight-and-a-half-point dogs against Bama and against Tennessee. And by the way, you don't think this is a tough four-game stretch? How about playing Auburn and then Arkansas and Dallas? Then Bama comes into College Station. Then you go to Knoxville. Boom, 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 boom. You want to know, by the way, why I don't think it's the, the most egregious sin in the world for SEC teams to play eight conference games sometimes, whereas others play nine? It's because that's what a chunk of your conference schedule looks like. We'll get to that later on in the show. The last year, okay, so we, when you look at how bad their season was last year, they got the whole lost five games by six points or fewer stat, and there are differing opinions as to how valuable that is, but I don't think this is going to happen, okay? If you want me on the record, I don't think Jimbo's going to get fired. I don't think they're going to miss out on a bowl game again, but the reason that I only made it an eight and a half on the boldness scale is because if you think about it, 
I have called Texas A&M uh, the most potentially volatile program to watch this year, volatile team, because there's like so much variance in what could happen. It could either go really good or it could go really bad. And if I have to account for that possibility, the really bad possibility, I can't make this anything more than a nine on the boldness scale. So even if I don't think it's going to happen, it's, it's like, you know, it's like you go to sleep and you let your buddy drive for six hours. You're either going to end up in the Rockies or you're going to end up out in the middle of Kansas. The classic Lloyd, Lloyd Christmas conundrum. And I don't think they're going to end up in Kansas, but, but, you know, that John Denver can be full of it sometimes. All right, let's continue. That's all a Dumb and Dumber reference for those unfamiliar. Jesse, you seen that? Yeah, he had, wow, that's an upset. Clemson, according to Gage at Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi, thank you for watching, Gage, he said uh, Clemson is going to be back in the playoffs and have the best defense in the country. You, you want a bold Clemson prediction? Me learning to pronounce that S properly in Clemson? That would be a bold prediction. Because you guys think I don't try, and I do. It's just, it's a, it's a hiccup. It's like a, a mnemonic hiccup of mine. This is a nine and a half. I, I think I may have glossed over that. So Gage said, not only is Clemson going to make the playoff, they're going to do it with the number one defense in the country. Hey, I got to be honest with you, making the playoff is not the biggest hurdle here. Having the number one defense in the country is. And you may think out there, if you don't pay much attention to stats, oh, Clemson's always dominant defensively. Well, they're always pretty good defensively. They've only had the number one defense in the country one time since Dabo's been there, and that was during the Brent Venables era. He's gone now. They're coming off the worst statistical defensive year they've had since 2016. That was last year. They finished 23rd. And I'm supposed to believe they're going to vault right back up there. Lost three important players to the draft. And I'm supposed to believe, having recruited outside the top 10 a couple of years in a row, voluntarily forsaking the portal, that they have elevated their roster to number one. I know they're going to be good. Number one? I don't know about that. I'm making this a nine and a half. I do not believe Clemson's going to have the best defense in the country. They may very well make the playoff, but that's, that's less than half of this prediction if you really want me to slice the pie accordingly. Also, if you look at their schedule, thank you, Colin, right on cue. They play North Carolina. They play Florida State, South Carolina, Miami, Notre Dame, Duke, O'Reilly Leonard and Duke to start the season. These are not easy offenses to go up against. And uh, so number one defense is a stretch. That's a nine and a half for me. Next up, it's a, it's a multi-tiered, a multi-faceted prediction again. But it's your predictions, not mine. Gary said... I've been leaving a bold prediction in the comments on YouTube, but I've seen you read them on Twitter. So I have a good one. Notre Dame's going to beat Ohio State. Ohio State's going to beat Michigan. Please see this. I really want to hear your opinion. Well, Gary, here's my opinion. This is an eight and a half on the boldness scale. We already have lines on these games. Ohio State, I believe, Jesse, what week does this game happen? It's not week two, right? It's week four, maybe? Week four. Yeah, because that's the same week Florida State goes to Clemson. So Notre Dame hosts Ohio State week four. Buckeyes currently a seven-point favorite. Remember this game was pretty back and forth last year. It wasn't so much back and forth. It was just close. And then Ohio State, I think they won. They, they scored 21. That was their lowest output of the season. It was tied with that like hurricane game they played against Northwestern, basically. But Notre Dame did a pretty good job limiting them last year. I can't say I'm crazy about the matchup of Notre Dame's secondary against the Ohio State receiver core this year. Of course, your counter to me could be, well, who's throwing him the ball? I hear you. Sounded like a smoker. I hear you. Okay, uh, that's only part one. Part two is Ohio State then goes on the road and beats Michigan. So Buckeyes back against the wall. As our buddy J.C. Sherbert would say, they would be in the proverbial wounded animal mode had they already lost to Notre Dame. Now they're going into the big house. Remember, they're still undefeated in conference play in this scenario. But the playoff hopes are on the line here, most likely. They are, the Buckeyes, a current two-and-a-half-point dog against Michigan. And that game is forever from now, so that could very well change. Just think about that, by the way. If Ohio State did lose in upset fashion to Notre Dame, because these are the two games on their schedule everyone's circling, and if they lose that first one, whew, such drama, such a tightrope walk for the rest of the year, for Ryan Day, his coaching staff, that team, it could actually serve them well. We've seen that happen many times before. And I also feel the need to remind you 
I don't need to bake in added drama to Ohio State, Michigan, because the Ohio State Buckeyes right now are trying to avoid something that last happened pre, it's pre-Y2K. Yeah, pre-Y2K. The last time they lost three in a row to Michigan was 95, 96, 97. The Braves won the World Series one of those years. They cost themselves the World Series the next year, and 97 was the Eric Gregg fiasco in the NLCS, and that's how my mind works when it comes to the 90s. I correlate college football occurrences with Atlanta Braves division championship runs. This is an eight and a half. That's what that is for me. Last bold prediction for this evening. We've got one that takes us all the way to Seattle, Washington. How about this? Washington becomes the first Pac-12 team since 2014 to make the national championship game. And unlike TCU, makes it competitive. This is such a sign of the times. And I'm not trying to hate on Washington. Really good team. And I'm not trying to hate on the Pac-12. I can't. I'm Pac-12 Pate. These are like my children. These programs are like my kids. But the boldest prediction that our friends on the West Coast can muster now is just one of our teams is going to make the title game. Not even win it. We're just going to make the title game. Now, what do you say to that, buddy? Well, I say it's a nine. Because even, even having said that, there is a difference. Well, there's a difference between making the playoff and making the title game. Now, TCU did show us last year it's possible to do one and then get completely splattered all over the place in the next. But they did make it. I'm going to call this a nine because I think the Pac-12 schedule is no joke this year. And Washington's got about as high an expectation as pretty much anyone out there. But they've got, they got a road, especially after their bye week that includes Oregon coming in there. They go to USC. They've got Utah. They go to Oregon State. Now, as you'll notice on there, they do avoid some teams that would be tough draws. But eventually, if you don't even play them in the regular season, you would play them in the Pac-12 championship game. They could, if they make it, play Oregon twice or play USC or Utah twice. So having said all that, that pass defense has got to be better. You know, you remember Michael Penix, and I'd be very, very curious, by the way, who they may have a quarterback advantage over in some of these hypothetical matchups in the semis, but their pass defense was 100th in the country last year. That's got to get better. I'm going to make that a nine. It's tough to make the national championship game. I'm going to make that a nine. Boy, do I have some video for you coming up momentarily. And you may think it's coming after the Academy ad read. No, it's actually going to be a caboose on the Academy ad read. I almost achieved my dreams the other night. So let me, let me just tease it up for you that way. Academy Sports and Outdoors, they equip me. And as you can see, I have, I have fairly, fairly low standards for what I need to operate on a day-to-day -day basis. I need a white t-shirt, some contact lenses, couple of meals. I'm good. Academy has most of those things. And look, if they don't, truthfully, do you really need it? Do you really need it? Uh, food and water? Yeah, I would argue yes. But other than that, they've got Big League Chew, so there's your dessert. Academy Sports and Outdoors has had our back for years now. Colin, we can say that. Yeah, for years now, because it's, it's in the plural. It's more than one. And we appreciate them right on cue. There's the nightly text from Cole Kublik while I'm on the air. Just with friends like Cole Kublik, man, there's very much a lack of a need for enemies. So Academy Sports and Outdoors got your back. But also, as I have come to find out, a lot of you, it seems like, are going to the store just so you can send me your receipts. And I'm fine with it because, as I've told you, I forward them right on to Academy. Academy.com, they've got you set if you can't get there in person. So here was my situation. In a classic practice what you preach scenario, I was sitting here in January. And I knew that church league softball season was coming up. So I went and got some pants from Academy. Shoes, pants, a classic blue shirt. Not Academy blue per se, although it is blue and it is from Academy. And so I equipped myself like head to toe. I even got a little rag I hang out of my back pocket, you know, just in case you have a, a little wetter outfield than you planned on, which we did the other night. So anyway, what does this have to do with unlocking my dreams. Well, one of my dreams is just for you to go to Academy and try them out. My other dream that I've had since I was a little boy has been very simple. They tell you to dream big when you're a kid, and I'm all for it. But really, I've had one dream, and one dream only I've been focused on. It's a goal of mine. It still is to this very day. I just want to hit a car with a home run. That's all I want to do. 
and I have not gotten as close as I would like. The other night, friends, it almost happened. There's a drive, deep left center. It's well out of there. One vehicle passes, ball hits the road, then another vehicle passes. If I were two seconds earlier or later, I achieve my dreams. I probably, you know, pull a Lou Gehring speech and just retire right there on the field because I will have achieved everything that I've wanted in life. As it turns out, the hunt continues. But I got close due to Academy Sports and Outdoors. Thanks for the entire wardrobe, guys. If you're, if you're listening on podcast, I couldn't really do it justice. I put that on my Instagram, at Josh. if you want to see it. I, that was a three-run home run in a very pivotal spot, and yet I walked to the dugout depressed. And it's not that I'm for property destruction. I would have gladly sent a proxy out there, not Jesse because he bailed on us the other night, but I would have sent Belchie out there, take their name and number. I will gladly replace the windshield. It would be the, the highlight of my life to pay to replace someone's windshield if it came courtesy of one of my home run balls. That's just the pinnacle of life. And I think anyone out there who's ever, who's ever girded up their loins to play a game of slow pitch softball understands where I'm coming from. Okay, we've got, we've got a lot of show left to go, so I need to get to it. I have something right now that I need to talk to you about that we, we found out about the other day, and it's, it's going to impact all of our lives. Brentley from Owensboro, Kentucky hit me up. He said, what do you think about the Netflix show about Urban Meyer in Florida? Oh, I have a lot of thoughts about it, Brentley. Now, this is not official, 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 but it's pretty official. How do we know? Well, Brandon Seiler was a linebacker at Florida back in the day. He posted a screenshot of an email he got from Netflix that confirmed a documentary called Swamp Kings that chronicles Florida's run 06 to 09 is set to debut August 23rd of this year. This is not like Euphoria, where apparently I'm going to wait until 2025 for actors already in their 20s to continue to portray high school kids. No, we get Swamp Kings right before the kickoff of the 2023 season, the way God intended. This could be great. Could also be terrible. And uh, if you're unfamiliar with how documentaries work, it really all comes down to creative and cooperation. That's the way documentaries have always been. My favorite college football documentary of all time is the 30 for 30 about SMU, Pony Excess. Go find it. It's in the archives at ESPN. Brilliantly done. And they got all the power players except for Sherwood Blunt, defiant to this day, on the record. They got everybody who was anybody around that scandal to talk, and they took their time, and they laid it out meticulously. And if you go into that thing not knowing one bit of fact-based detail about the SMU cheating scandal, you'll walk away with a full education on it. So that is the barometer by which I judge all college football and sports documentaries. On a scale of one to pony excess, what will Swamp Kings rate? Well, we don't have to wait long to find out. So anyway, my thoughts, since you asked me, creative and cooperation. Number one, what's the creative vision? Who called the editorial shots? Do they really, really understand the weeds of what that era was like? Are they willing to ask the tough questions about that era? Let's face it now, you had a transcendent talent like Tim Tebow. You had a generational head coach, troubled as it turned out, but a generational head coach in Urban Meyer. You had star players littered all over that roster, but you also had a future serial killer on the roster. You also had several dozen guys that were going to go on to serve time in prison on that roster. You can't tell the entire story of that period of Florida football without touching on all that. If they do, it could be classic. And also, cooperation. We don't know who they got to sit down to be interviewed for this. Are we going to hear from Urban Meyer? Are we going to hear from Tim Tebow? Who else are we going to hear from? Could be really fun. I remember in 2009, uh, this is long before anyone ever paid me to go to a football game, I can assure you. And it was also the time where I could not afford to go to games like the SEC championship game. So I go up to Atlanta with a buddy of mine and this is Saban versus Meyer. This is Bama versus Florida, part two. This is the 09 game. And Florida's looking to cap a run that may very well coronate them as the greatest team of all time. Because they were already coming off a national championship year. All those dudes come back. This is the classic Tebow. I'm coming back. Let's do it again. And they go undefeated, regular season. They go to Atlanta. They meet Bama. 
And I remember going under the Georgia Dome. Rest in peace, Georgia Dome. I remember going under the Georgia Dome with my buddy before the game. And um, Florida's bus is pulled up. And so the team gets off. And this is a point in my life where I'm not used to seeing this. So team gets off. And there were, there were twins, the Pouncey twins, walk by and just look ready to annihilate someone. But I'll tell you what I never forgot. And I was telling Jesse this earlier today, unfiltered. I'll tell you a sanitized version of it. Aaron Hernandez walked by. Aaron Hernandez had a different look in his eye than any athlete I'd ever seen. Aaron Hernandez had a different way about him and gave off a different vibe than any human I had ever been around. And um, I'll leave that where it is. It stuck with me to this day that sticks with me. These games were so huge. This period of Florida football and then college football was so huge. I think it may be accurate to say that if you were to go back and you were to just chart like the lineage of college football, if you want to look for peaks in the sport, if you want to look for moments where the sport has never felt bigger, those games between Bama and Florida, they weren't even national title games. Those were bigger than the national title both years. Both years, they were one versus two. It's Saban versus Meyer. It's, it's Urban Meyer being the king of the SEC after everyone doubted him when he got hired. And if you don't believe me, go down south and ask some people who are man enough to be honest with you what they thought when this dude from Utah got hired to come into the big bad SEC. And they'll tell you they laughed at it. And they thought that Mickey Mouse conference he's in out there, some of those offensive tricks, that smoke and mirror offense he runs out there, it's not going to work in the SEC. He completely redefined offensive football in the SEC. He came in and out-recruited everyone. He redefined the standard of what it was to recruit in the SEC. He wasn't from here. He had never been here. He has got a death grip on the SEC. Saban comes to Bama. Two years in, he gets his first shot at him. They lead in Atlanta going into the fourth quarter. Tim Tebow does what he does. Florida wins 31-20. And the entire 2009 season, I, oh man, I'll never forget it. It's like everybody views it as a formality. And in reality, both of them are having to dogfight to get back to Atlanta, but everyone is building up like it's a prize fight. They're promoting it. Week five, week six, week seven, like it's already scheduled. And they both get to Atlanta undefeated. That moment, going into that 2009 SEC championship game, that's as big as college football has ever felt to me. That's pre-playoff. That is, that is in a world where even though you're both spotless and you're both one versus two, there's no safety net. Because you've got a two-team playoff. It's the BCS era. Number one's going to play number two. And so they know, losers going home. That felt like the national championship game. It was, I, you had to be there. I guess you had to be there. So, is that the story this documentary is going to tell? We will see. It is due out in a little over two months. Swamp Kings on Netflix. Maybe we'll do a watch along. Let's do some spotlight. Let's go to school for a second. Here's what I'm going to do over the next, uh, call it a month, month and a half, maybe a little bit longer. It is preview magazine season after all. And I encourage you guys, patronize the magazines. I hear some are a little bit thinner this year than they have been in the past. I don't know what controls that. But anyway, go buy them. I don't, I don't care if you treat it as the Bible or as like a college football farmer's almanac for yourself. Go buy them. Keep the industry afloat. But also what we're going to do on our show is I'm going to kind of do like a page by page version. And none of these are going to last too long. But I want to give you, the listener or viewer of Late Kick, if this is your only stop for college football, I want to give you a pretty good view of some of these teams. So maybe you don't feel like you have to go to 37 other places, although I encourage you to go there. But if you don't, that's your prerogative. Oklahoma, Pate State 101. What do you need to know about Oklahoma coming into this year? I got three questions for them. The first is how much defensive improvement is it fair for me to expect? They were bad last year. Outside of just the record slapping you in the face and then barely making a bowl game in year one under Brent Venables, their defensive play left a lot to be desired. Almost in a strange way, they were so bad defensively, it was comforting. And that sounds crazy. What I mean is, if they were just kind of bad, you may look at it and say, oh, maybe Brenton Venables was just a little overrated. They were actually so bad defensively, 
It's almost like you look at it and say, oh, something was clearly wrong. It's If you're watching a NASCAR race and a car is three miles an hour off the pace, that's bad. If they're 30 miles an hour off the pace, you're almost less worried because you just know something mechanically is wrong and you'll fix it and you'll be better next week. They were 99th in points per game. They were 122nd in yards given up per game. There is newness everywhere on this team. They portaled and they portaled hard. Linebacker, defensive line, we're going to talk about that in a second. So if they're bad again this year, it will not be because they did not retool. They got a bunch of dudes. Peyton Bowen coming in there playing as a freshman probably. So they'll be different. They'll be new. They'll be more skilled defensively. I think it'll translate. My question is, what is fair to expect from them? Number two, question number two. Is there a wide receiver one on this roster? Because they lost Marvin Mims. That was the only 1,000-yard pass catcher they had last year. Lost a couple more of their top leading pass catchers, but they really only had one that stood out statistically, and he went in the second round of the NFL draft. So, Drake Stoops, he's on the roster. Jaleel Farouk, he's there. Andrew Anthony, they added him. Uh, Also, Jaden Gibson, they expect a lot out of him, but... This is largely an unproven crop of players. Dylan Gabriel there to throw you the ball. Jackson Arnold waiting in the wings. So you are not going to be hurting at quarterback. It's just how many pass catchers there can I defend on? Can I depend on? And is there is there a true wide receiver one in that room? That's what God created fall camp for. Question number three. Who's right about Brent Venables? Strangely, although he's just one year into his tenure, there doesn't seem to be a lot of indifference on Brent Venables. There are people who believe in him, and there are people who have totally sold their stock on him. And there are not a lot of people where I am, which is just kind of in between. I don't think I have enough information on him yet. And there is a lot of wisdom sometimes in just taking a wait-and-see approach. It's really weird, though, because most of the time, people will just give you benefit of the doubt for a little while. There was kind of a a more knee-jerk reaction to Brent Venables. I was ironically worried about talent acquisition. When he came to Oklahoma, some of you will remember me saying this. I was saying, I don't doubt that he can coach football. I don't doubt he'll put a good staff together. Will they be able to attack Texas? Will they be able to attack this new thing at the time called the transfer portal? Number four and number eight last year in those two rankings. Number four and number nine this year in those two rankings. So they've been top 10 both of his years in recruiting and in portal rankings. I can find ways to reasonably explain away all of the bad stuff last year. Whether I'm right or wrong, as, it, as history will show us, or as the future will show us, I can at least explain it away. Talent acquisition at least is not going to be a problem for them. So if they fail, if, if the people who doubt Brent Venables are right, they're going to be right solely because he can't coach. They're not going to be right. And this is one fear that's been alleviated. They're not going to be right because it turned out he couldn't go get the players. The best position group on this team, I could have said linebacker. I could have said safety. I actually went the pretty easy route. I went quarterback. Dylan Gabriel's there. And last year when he went down, 49 nothing against Texas was the result. This year, you actually have one of the best quarterbacks out of last year's cycle in the room in Jackson Arnold. We saw him at Elite 11 last year. We'll be out there again in a couple of weeks, by the way. You know, I'll save that for next week. Um, Quarterback's a really good room here. But as I said, you know, Dylan Gabriel, if healthy, is the guy this year and should be the guy this year. The breakout candidate, though, that's where I go to another position group. Deshaun McCullough is a name you really need to know. Now, Oklahoma fans have probably already heard about him to the point that they feel like he's started there multiple years. No, he started at Indiana as a freshman. And he was a true freshman All-American and played in all 12 games. For the Hoosiers, as a true freshman, he tied for the team lead in sacks. 6'5", 230, he's going to play that cheetah position in Venables' defense. Deshaun McCullough is going to be a really, really good player for them. Keep an eye on him. And as for the schedule with Oklahoma, paper pop. According to the unofficial producer Jesse Metrics, Oklahoma has the second weakest schedule in the Big 12. Sound the alarm. Let me hit the pause button. Let me call one of my three timeouts per show. I didn't say Oklahoma has a weak schedule. I know some of you heard that. That's not what I said. I said relative to the rest of the Big 12, Oklahoma 
you could make the argument, has the second weakest schedule amongst Big 12 teams. Did everyone catch that? Okay. For the record, we think Oklahoma State has the weakest. So something about the state there. They play seven of the bottom eight odds teams in the Big 12. So we line up the odds to win the Big 12. Seven of the bottom eight teams, Oklahoma plays them this year. They got Texas, as they always do, neutral site. They don't play Texas Tech. They don't play Kansas State. They don't play Baylor. They got Tulsa, Arkansas State, and SMU in non-conference play. Now, I don't want to gloss over SMU uh, because that's a really good team. They play in week two. Over-under win total, eight and a half for SMU. So that's not a gimme. But it's also not like Texas going to Alabama in week two. Oklahoma's over-under win total is nine and a half. This is going to be a radically different looking team this year. How much of that different is a good kind of different? And how much of that different is just, oh, it's the same result. It's just like a different route to get to the same result. I happen to think they'll springboard nicely this year, but I have some buddies whose opinions I trust who just totally disagree with me on that. We'll see. They're watching us in Columbus, Ohio. Tampa, Florida is tuned in. Santa Monica, California is tuned in. Thank you guys so much. If you're tuned in live, doubly appreciate it. And whether you're watching live or replay, subscribe to the channel and like the video. We have a tweet, don't we, Colin? Yeah, let, let's, let's show this tweet to tee this next segment up. And let me take a sip from the chalice beforehand. A lot of questionable liquid in the chalice tonight. A lot of questionable liquid. How, you know, I was about to ask myself on air, how should I explain this? I don't have to explain it. Reed does for me. Reed from Decatur, Georgia. <laughs> Reed said, I don't get why you wouldn't support all leagues playing the same number of conference games instead of being okay with the SEC hiding from competition and playing eight. Look, I've listened to this for the better part of a week. I'm tired of talking about it, but you're not. And I do have a couple of angles I want to go with you tonight that I have not spoken about on this show. Can we just put it all out there in the open? When people say the SEC should play nine conference games, whether you believe it or not, you've got the same opinion I do. I want them to play nine conference games. I'm not against it. In fact, last show, I emphatically stated multiple times, yeah, in a perfect world, I'd like them to play nine conference games. Uh, that, that came off somehow as me defending the SEC playing eight conference games. But anyway... I digress. If you don't like the current setup and you say, I just prefer them to play nine, that's fine. Even if I disagree with you, that's fine. There are too many people of Reed's ilk out there. Reed, I love you. So this is not a shot at you as a person. I don't like your take. There are too many people like Reed out there right now who are, who are going to the old standby of the SEC is scared. The SEC is hiding from competition. And the SEC, here's my favorite. It's, it's so easy to beat down like a pinata logically, but here's my favorite. The SEC is masking things. And, and, the, and the way it really goes is, I guess masking's not the right word. Here it is. The SEC is inflating themselves by playing only eight conference games. And I think our buddies at College Football Nerds did a really good job of summing this up today. And so I'm showing one of their tweets on the screen right now. And if you're listening on podcast, here's what it says. In the playoffs, nine game conferences are three and 12 versus eight game conferences. Nine gamers have blown out eight gamers twice. Eight gamers have blown out nine gamers eight times. And here's the point. If that lost you, if that's just minutia for you, here's the hammer home point. If eight-game conferences work the system to unfairly get in the playoffs, the results would be the opposite. It's a great point. It, it, in more words, is saying what I tried to tell you the other day. The claim that you just want them to play nine games is fine, but the claim that you want them to play nine games because somehow the eight-game conference schedule falsely props them up is false. And the way you know it's false is because eventually they have to get to the playoff and play against conferences that played the nine-game league schedule. If you were right about the SEC being falsely inflated, they'd get exposed. They don't. The opposite happens. To this point, no team from a conference that plays nine conference games has ever won a national title. Ever. Ever. Like in all the years we've done it, 
the only year it happened was a technicality. It was the 2020 COVID year, and that was the year Bama won it, and they played all Power 5 competition. So relative to the rest of the country, they had a scheduling disadvantage that year. There's this other part of the argument where eight games doesn't make sense. Um, This is the one I wanted to hit on tonight, and I'm going to give our buddies at College Football Nerds more credit. I'm going to go right back to them again because it was like it was like the Steve Austin promo after King of the Ring 96. They spit out two winners here over the course of like a couple of seconds. So people who claim the eight-game conference schedule is just corrupt. It doesn't make sense. It should be nine or nothing. I actually don't agree with that. If you ask me my perfect world, I agree with our buddies at CFB Nerds. Listen to this. Think about it before you just start screaming at your phone. Think about this for a second. They said uh, the same thing I agree with. They said our desired model has always been all Power Five conferences play eight games in conference, and then they require two out-of-conference Power Five opponents. You know what that does? What it does is it gives a tremendous amount of cross-conference data points. Right now, you're just asking teams to load up within their own conference, and that's wonderful for being able to figure out how good teams are within their conference. But a lot of the conversation about college football is national. Like when you see polls come out on Sunday, when you see the college football playoff committee meet, they're not putting out Big Ten rankings. They're not putting out SEC rankings or Pac-12 rankings. They're putting out national rankings. And they're consequential when it comes to the committee. You know what would greatly help? It would greatly help when we're wondering what 9-1 and means in the ACC versus a 9-1 and in the Big 12. It would help if we had a lot more out-of-conference data points. It would help if NC State had played Oklahoma State. It would help if Auburn had played Arizona State. Those data points help because then you can extrapolate accordingly and you can figure out conference versus conference. What does the six seed here look like relative to the four seed there? As it stands, you have to wait until bowl season for that. And by that point, folks are opting out. And in some cases, you're not even getting a true result. And by then, it's too late anyway. I love that model. If you ask me my perfect model, I want all of them playing eight conference games and then requiring at least two power five non-conferences. And by the way, that's a minimum. Feel free to play more, especially if we're properly interpreting strength of schedule amongst the committee. Feel free to play more. This fascination with nine games, I, I, in some ways I get where it comes from because in the world we live in, if we're not all going to play eight, I'm all for the entertainment product being ramped up. So I'm fine with the SEC. If they want to go to nine games, I'd even support it. My perfect world is much more in line with what CFB nerds said, which is every conference plays eight and then you beef up your out-of-conference schedule. Like I'd love to see cross-conference competition pre-bowl season as much as possible. But the conference game as a metric has been so warped over the past few years. People pretending like, your ninth game of the year, if it's against a conference opponent, just carries so much more weight. Like playing someone in your conference is worth 125% of playing someone good from another conference. No, it's the strength of your schedule, period. That's all I care about. I don't care about how many of the teams came from your conference. Ultimately, I know you're going to have a big enough sample size of conference play that you can then seed your conference title game and crown a champ. I don't ever worry about that, whether you're playing eight or nine. I would love a world where we've got a healthy dose of both. We've got a nice, sizable portion of conference play. It's like two-thirds of your schedule or however that fraction works out. But then there is also a couple of really good data points on here where you go play Minnesota. You go play Penn State. You go play Nebraska. Big Ten heavy there, I know. That's where I stand on that. So uh, in conclusion, I don't know that it does me any good to say this over and over again. I wasn't defending it the other night. I I led the segment and concluded the segment by saying, I don't like the decision. I want them to play nine conference games if this is the world we're going to live in. But I also said, I I do understand the realism of the moment instead of the idealism of the moment. And I get the reasons. I, I don't care about being bowl eligible. I don't care how much money ESPN is or isn't willing to pay you because none of those things really affect me or they don't matter to me. But I absolutely share your concern with you voluntarily beefing up your schedule only to be punished for playing a tougher schedule by a playoff committee that may or may not completely adhere to the you are what your record says you are philosophy. 
Did I say that too fast? Probably. I'm not going to say it again, though. So I think there were some valid concerns in the SEC's room, even if I didn't get the result I wanted. I didn't think it was stupid. I didn't think it was the worst decision, like a catastrophic decision. It was a decision, and it's temporary, and in 2030, you won't be worried about it. Okay, I want to close tonight with sharing some names with you that I, uh, I think it's in your best interest to know, because over these next two months, I think you all know how summer shakes out. It, around here, summer looks like this. Everyone else goes on vacation, and we just continue to grind. But also, because of that, we put ourselves that much further ahead come August, and then especially September. And I know many of you, and I know the warehouses you work in, and I know the routes you drive, and I know the office cubicles you sit in, and I know what you talk about any time that you're given that's called free time. I know what you're talking about. You're with your buddies, and you're talking about college football, and one of the most most precious things that you can hold is the upper hand in those conversations by knowing things your buddies don't know. And humbly, that's what I'm here to provide you. I thought Chris Hummer did a really good job on 247sports.com the other day of providing some sleeper under the radar names in the portal. And I said, that's a good idea, Hummer. I think I'll take it. Tanner Mordecai, quarterback, starting quarterback this year for Wisconsin by way of SMU. That's an under the radar portal player you need to know about. This guy's going to play a big role in determining the outcome of the Big Ten West this year. Ohio State has to go there, I think, as well. He was the eighth rated transfer quarterback, so he's not exactly up there with Sam Hartman in terms of profile. But back-to-back years at SMU, he threw for over 3,500 yards and had over 30 touchdowns. He's not green. He's not a depth chart casualty from somewhere else. He's played. And he's played a lot. And he's 6'3", 214. You got the Phil Longo offense up there. They are going to ask him to throw it around a lot. It would not shock me with the way they're going to use him if he didn't challenge for those 3,535 total touchdown type numbers again this upcoming year. And by the way, what a shock to the senses that would be if Wisconsin did that. Your buddies right now expect more ground and pound from Wisconsin. But you know better, don't you? Next up, from right here in our backyard, there was a running back at Vanderbilt named Ray Davis. Could just as easily have been a session percussion musician down on Music Row as he could a running back with that kind of name. But Ray Davis ran the ball very well for Vandy last year. 29 receptions as well to go on top of 1,000 yards rushing. He headed to Kentucky. Just up I-65, good ways. He headed to Kentucky Kentucky lost Chris Rodriguez, so they needed help. They got him. They got another kid from NC State. They added Devin Leary, and they added a bunch of offensive line help, which was their problem last year. Could be a good offense. New offensive coordinator as well. Kind of new, although he's been there before. So sneaky good offense there. Ray Davis, 5'10", 216, ranked 125th overall, number 11 running back in the portal class. I think he'll perform a little bit more admirably than those numbers would suggest. Next, I want to take you to Nebraska. We had a kid at Virginia. His name was Billy Kemp, the fourth. And 2021 was really his pop year. Virginia, he had 74 receptions, 725 yards, six touchdowns. He's 5'9", 180. Uh, He has not been a household name, even in the ACC. And Virginia was horrific last year in every facet, so he didn't shine last year. There is some thought around the Nebraska program That kid could end up being their number one receiver this year. And it is also thought around the Nebraska program that if you want to talk about synergy, if you want to talk about puzzle pieces meshing together, Jeff Sims at quarterback by way of Georgia Tech, and then Billy Kemp by way of Virginia could be a really good one-two pairing there. And then lastly, but certainly not least around here, our guy at the University of Arkansas, Varkis Gums, he was committed. He was uncommitted, then he committed again, tight end, 6'3", 230, North Texas single season records for receptions and yards for a tight end. That's what he did last year. He was all conference as a true freshman. If you go and Google this kid's name, our videos pop up. That's how much we've talked about him. That's how, on, that's how much on the Varkis Gums train we have been. So we are riding or dying with him. And to a certain extent, Arkansas's offense is kind of going to be willing to do that this year. Arkansas, um, you know my 
my proclivity for leaning a little bit more towards Fayetteville. That's naturally how my posture is right now, actually. That's the Northwest over there. I think that he could be an integral part, just a fascinating piece to that offense and therefore a fascinating offensive piece in the SEC West in general. It's going to be the same for Arkansas this year. They're going to be in a lot of close games. Uh, They do not have as tough a schedule as they did last year. I think they're perfectly happy with no one talking about that. And so I won't yet, but it's a long summer and I cannot promise anything except that if he's healthy, Farkeev's gums is going to be a very, very important part of that offensive attack. Okay. We're going to be live from Miami Thursday. We will have normalcy this week, at least in terms of our work rate. We're going to put out a Late Kick Extra podcast on Tuesday. We will have Late Kick Live on Thursday night. We'll have Mario Cristobal on the show. A few other surprises. It's not just going to be a Miami show. It's going to be a normal show. It's just that we'll also happen to have an extended sit down. As I've told you before, if we take time to go on the road, we're not producing a cookie cutter interview. We're not doing little ping pong ball Q&As. Hey, hey, you fit so well at Miami. Tell me why. That's not the kind of talk that we're going to have. And we've had Mario on the show a few times. So, so some stuff you want to hear, you'll hear it Thursday. At least if I'm halfway decent at doing my job. And I look forward to you guys tuning in. Big week in South Florida. Hopefully, hopefully we can find parking down there. Big week. I appreciate you guys so much. Make sure you're subscribed everywhere that you get this show. Subscribing is the key to the game, and it's what helps us the most. Thank you so much for Director Colin, for Producer Jesse. I'm Josh Bate. Take care. Have a great start to your week, and God bless.